Letter forty one of Letters of John Keats to His Family and Friends, edited by Sidney Colvin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. To Benjamin Bailey, Tynmouth, Friday, March thirteenth, eighteen eighteen. My dear Bailey, when a poor devil is drowning, it is said he comes thrice to the surface ere he makes his final sink. If, however, even at the third rise, he can manage to catch hold of a piece of weed or rock, he stands a fair chance, as I hope I do now, of being saved. I have sunk twice in our correspondence, have risen twice, and have been too idle, or something worse, to extricate myself. I have sunk the third time, and just now risen again at this two of the clock p.m., and saved myself from utter perdition by beginning this all drenched as I am, and fresh from the water. And I would rather endure the present inconvenience of a wet jacket than you should keep a laced one in store for me. Why did I not stop at Oxford on my way? How can you ask such a question? Why did I not promise to do so? Did I not, in a letter to you, make a promise to do so? Then how can you be so unreasonable as to ask me why I did not? This is the thing. For... I have been rubbing up my invention, trying several slights. I first polished a cold, felt it in my fingers, tried it on the table, but could not pocket it. I tried chilblains, rheumatism, gout, tight boots. Nothing of that sort would do. So this is, as I was going to say, the thing. I had a letter from Tom, saying how much better he had got, and thinking he had better stop. I went down to prevent his coming up. Will this not do? Turn it which way you like. It is salvaged all round. I have used it these three last days to keep out the abominable Devonshire weather. By the by, you may say what you will of Devonshire. The truth is, it is a splashy, rainy, misty, snowy, foggy, hayly, floody, muddy, slipshod county. The hills are very beautiful when you get a sight of them. The primroses are out, but then you are in. The cliffs are of a fine deep color, but then the clouds are continually vying with them. The women like your London people, in a sort of negative way, because the native men are the poorest creatures in England, because government never have thought it worth while to send a recruiting party among them. When I think of Wordsworth's sonnet, Vanguard of liberty, ye men of Kent, the degenerated race about me are pulvis epicac simplex, a strong dose. Were I a corsair, I'd make a descent on the south coast of Devon, if I did not run the chance of having cowardice imputed to me. As for the men, they'd run away into the Methodist meeting-houses, and the women would be glad of it. Had England been a large Devonshire, we should not have won the Battle of Waterloo. There are knotted oaks, there are lusty rivulets, there are meadows such as are not. There are valleys of feminine climate, but there are no thews and sinews. Moore's Almanac is here a curiosity. Arms, neck, and shoulders may at least be seen there and the ladies read it as some out-of-the-way romance. Such a quelling power have these thoughts over me, that I fancy the very air of a deteriorating quality. 
I fancy the flowers, all precocious, have an accretion spell about them. I feel able to beat off the Devonshire waves like soap froth. I think it well for the honor of Britain that Julius Caesar did not first land in this county. A Devonshire standing on his native hills is not a distinct object. He does not show against the light. A wolf or two would dispossess him. I like, I love England. I like its living men. Give me a long brown plain for my morning, so I may meet with some of Edmund Ironside's descendants. Give me a barren mould, so I may meet with some shadowing of Alfred in the shape of a gypsy, a huntsman, or a shepherd. Scenery is fine, but human nature is finer. The sword is richer for the tread of a real nervous English foot. The eagle's nest is finer, for the mountaineer has looked into it. Are these facts or prejudices? Whatever they be, for them I shall never be able to relish entirely any Devonshire scenery. Homer is fine, Achilles is fine, Diomed is fine, Shakespeare is fine, Hamlet is fine, Lear is fine, but dwindled Englishmen are not fine. Where, too, the women are so passable and have such English names, such as Ophelia, Cordelia, and so on, that they should have such paramours, or rather imparamours. As for them, I cannot in thought help wishing, as did the cruel emperor, that they had but one head, and I might cut it off to deliver them from any horrible courtesy they may do their undeserving countrymen. I wonder I meet with no born monsters. O oh, Devonshire, last night I thought the moon had dwindled in heaven." I have never had your sermon from Wordsworth, but Mr. Dilk lent it to me. You know my ideas about religion. I do not think myself more in the right than other people, and that nothing in this world is provable. I wish I could enter into all your feelings on the subject, merely for one short ten minutes, and give you a page or two to your liking. I am sometimes so very sceptical as to think poetry itself a mere jack-o'-lantern, to amuse whoever may chance to be struck with its brilliance. As tradesmen say, everything is worth what it will fetch, so probably every mental pursuit takes its reality and worth from the ardor of the pursuer, being in itself a nothing. Ethereal things may at least be thus real, divided under three heads, things real, things semi-real, and nothings. Things real, such as existences of sun, moon, and stars, and passages of Shakespeare. Things semi-real, such as love, the clouds, and so on, which require a greeting of the spirit to make them wholly exist. And nothings, which are made great and dignified by an ardent pursuit, which, by the by, stamp the burgundy mark on the bottles of our minds, insomuch as they are able to consecrate whate'er they look upon. I have written a sonnet here of somewhat collateral nature, so don't imagine it apropos de bolt. Four seasons fill the measure of the year. There are four seasons in the mind of man. He hath his lusty spring, when fancy clear takes in all beauty within an easy span. He has his summer, when luxuriously he chews the honeyed cud of fair spring thoughts, till in his soul, dissolved, 
they come to be part of himself he hath his autumn ports and havens of repose when his tired wings are folded up and he content to look on mists in idleness to let fair things pass by unheeded as a threshold brook he has his winter too of pale misfeature or else he would forego his mortal nature ay this may be carried but what am i talking of it is an old maxim of mine and of course must be well known that every point of thought is the centre of an intellectual world the two uppermost thoughts in a man's mind are the two poles of his world he revolves on them and everything is southward or northward to him through their means we take but three steps from feathers to iron now my dear fellow i must once for all tell you i have not one idea of the truth of any of my speculations i shall never be a reasoner because i care not to be in the right when retired from bickering and in a proper philosophical temper so you must not stare if in any future letter i endeavour to prove that apollo as he had catgut strings to his lyre used a cat's paw as a pectin and further from said pectin's reiterated and continual teasing came the term henpecked my brother tom desires to be remembered to you he has just this moment had a spitting of blood poor fellow remember me to gleig and whitehead your affectionate friend john keats end of letter forty one